This is JudoCast. We go to the mat and beyond with some of the most prominent minds in judo. Please welcome your host, a two-time Pan American champion, entrepreneur, and judo enthusiast, Chuck Jefferson. Our next guest is a judoka that accomplished everything she set out to do in judo. Becoming the first American to win a world judo title was only a small piece of her lifelong pursuit of excellence. A judo journey combined with educational pursuits that would have Dr. Kano smiling in his grave. Her athletic success never came at the expense of her education. In fact, it was quite the opposite. She earned a business degree from Washington University in St. Louis at the age of 19. After getting her MBA from the University of Minnesota at 22 years old, she went straight into the workforce, working a full-time job while pursuing an elite-level career in judo. In 1984, her dream was realized as she became the first American to win a world judo title. Her daughter, Ronda Rousey, was a two-time Olympian who won an Olympic bronze medal in 2008 and later became the first female bantamweight champion of the UFC. Please welcome our special guest, CEO of Seven Generation Games and world judo champion, Dr. Anne-Marie DeMars. Welcome to uh, JudoCast. I have today Dr. Anne-Marie DeMars. Uh, thank you so much for spending your uh, quality time with me tonight. I really appreciate you being here. Well, there's a pandemic. I didn't have a lot of places to go. <laughs> right. Well, for me, that was... I wouldn't be with you anyway. Uh, I well, with you anyway. I do appreciate it. Well, somebody that uh, is, is a busy person, I think that you would probably be the definition of busy uh, looking at all the things that you've accomplished um, through your career, and it and it doesn't seem that you're slowing down either. Well, I keep, you know, when I first got married, every year I would tell my husband and the kids, next year I'll travel less, and I just gave up saying it after a while. But this year I did travel less, that's for sure. Right, yeah, we were all stuck at home this year, weren't we? Yeah. All right, so I am going to catch you off guard here for a little warm-up. If you could tell me where you were born... And what was your earliest and most fond childhood memory? Huh, interesting. I was born on an Air Force base. My dad was crew military. Um, my fondest childhood memory. I used to play with my cousins all the time. There's my mom was one of a bunch of kids and there's a zillion of us. And we would get together at every holiday, you know, when my dad was back stateside, Christmases, family reunion, stuff like that. And there was just a horde of us. And you will laugh at me because my family is super Catholic, right? So when I was a kid, I don't know if small children watch this, but I thought every time you had sex that you got pregnant and had a baby because everybody I knew had a baby every year. So there was like <laughs> a zillion cousins. And there was always a bunch of us the same age running amok. And um, I, I still feel bad about the time that we broke my cousin Leo's um, collarbone. It was an accident, but... Yeah, we just did a lot of the kind of rough housing that kids do. It was very fun. Wow. And uh, how old were you when you got your first start at judo? I was 12. And and where was that at? Where were you where were you at that time? Alton, Illinois. The Alton YMCA. It isn't there anymore. They tore it down. Yeah, I walked in. It's a judo club and joined. Did you have any kind of family experience in judo? Or is it something that just kind of was a, a convenient activity for kids at the time? 
oh God, no, nobody in my family did judo. Nobody in my family did sports. They thought it was the stupidest thing ever. Um, my mom took me to the Y and said, join something. Cause I was a really fat little kid and she thought I should get some exercise and title nine had not yet passed. And so that meant lots of sports didn't allow girls. Right. And so I had three choices. I had swimming, which if you're a fat little kid, you know, fat little girls don't want to put on swimsuits, um, track, which if you're a short, fat little kid, it's not your thing. Right. right. And judo. And judo, if you're a short, fat little kid, nobody can get under you for saying I, you're right, because you're too short. Right. And nobody can knock you over backwards because you're too fat. And it was like throwing a tree stump. My brothers used to call me stumpy. And yeah, somebody said, I heard you were built like a tree when you were little. I was like, no, I was built like a tree stump. <laughs> so yeah, I walked in, I saw judo. There was a girl I recognized from my grade at school on the mat. There was a woman, black belt which was very unusual. She was the sister of the original instructor, which is why they had allowed girls to do judo so she could join. And yeah, it was, I, you know, I, like I said, I had a bunch of brothers, a bunch of cousins. I was used to fighting for fun. I was used to fighting because my brothers annoyed me. And so when I was at school, if I knocked kids down, I got in trouble. And at judo practice, I knocked kids down. They said, here, here's a medal. You want to go to France? And I just, this, this stuff is amazing. Right. So judo was like a natural fit for you. I mean, it seems like you took a liking to it pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. And like I said, I was from a family, a big family, and there are a lot of us close together. And we fought a lot. People who say girls don't fight. Like people say, oh, you're so lucky of girls. Girls don't fight like boys do. It's a lot. My family, they do. Right. That's funny. So I, obviously there was a lot of inequalities at this time. Was there, was there a lot of opportunities for like competitions for little girls at this time? Oh, hell no. Um, I mean, I went to anything there was, I kind of lucked out that I don't know if you ever knew Bill Horvay, but he had the Decatur Dojo and that was not very far from where I lived. It was within driving distance. And they used to have a tournament every weekend, uh, not every weekend, every month, like once a month. And I think they probably did it to raise money for their dojo or whatever, you know, keep the lights on. And they had girls there. So at least once a month, I could go to a tournament. So that was good. And yeah, it was one of those things when a tournament announcement would come out and you'd look at the flyer and I always look to see if they were going to have girls competition or not. And sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't. Right. Was there a point in your childhood where you thought that, hey, I mean, I'm pretty good at judo and I think maybe I want to take this to a higher level or maybe take it more serious? I remember hearing there was a senior national championships and I just decided, well, I'm going to win that. I think for me, I don't know, what was the name of that movie? Life is Beautiful, I think. And it won some Academy Award or something. And the guy thanked his parents for bringing him up poor. And I actually understood that because, you see, my my mom didn't have any money to send me around, right? So I didn't go to national tournaments. I didn't have my original judo coach was a guy who got his black belt when he was in the Air Force in Japan and came back and taught judo, you know, at the local Y. So I was like the toughest green belt around. So I thought I was badass, right? Right. And there was actually, I think, a benefit for me because I didn't go to these big tournaments to get my ass kicked. So I thought I was going to be great. And then by the time I actually got to a national championships, when I was living in Illinois at the time, the Chicago Nidanshikai, the Judo Black Belt Association, if you won the state championships, they paid your way to the nationals. They gave you a check. And this was the first time I ever ate in like an actual sit-down restaurant. 
because wow. I cashed the check they gave me for like airfare and that and hopped in a car with some of the guys from our club that were driving so I could like eat at a restaurant. And um, I shared a, a hotel room with several other people. And I still remember because Dougie Tono, who you probably know, who is now like Sensei Tono of Vermont. Right. But we were like a couple of teenagers and we just had no idea about anything. Um, Gail Cohen, the Cohen brother's sister was... Uh, appointed to chaperone us to keep us out of trouble. But yeah, we weren't going to do anything because we knew nothing. We were right. so naive about life. I mean, I could fight, but anything else, I had no clue. So when you're you're starting to go to a few tournaments and at some point, like you start to work your way into the senior circuit, I guess, nationals for the United States. And then was it a, a pretty quick transition to start going to international tournaments? Or even then, was there a lot of international opportunities? Yeah, there weren't a lot of international opportunities for women, and I didn't have any money. You know, I heard your podcast with uh, Mike Swain, and I remember when, because he's a little bit younger than me, and we were on the team at the same time, and people were saying things like, oh, you know, Mike Swain sold his car so he could go train in Japan. That's real sacrifice. And I thought, are you kidding me? I don't have a car. Right. (laughs) I'm working full time to go to college and sending money home to my mom to help with the younger kids. So, no, I won the senior nationals. I won the collegiates. Um, I think I won the U.S. Open that year. And I graduated from college the same year. I was 19. And I went to grad school. You went to college when you were 16. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. And then I graduated when I was 19. And then I went to grad school because... I figured MBAs. I didn't know what they did. I called my grandma and I said, yeah, one of my professors said that I should go get an MBA. And she said, what do MBAs do? And I said, I don't know, but I think they make a lot of money. And she says, Miha, you should do that. So right. <laughs> I went to the University of Minnesota and got an MBA. So even at the point where like, I think it's like 1983, you win the Pan American Games. Mm-hmm. Is there any funding at this point? Is USA Judo... I, I don't know how much USA Judo was fairly new in the early 80s. I'm not sure if there was a lot of fundings because most of the funding from USA Judo began, I think, after the 84 Olympics. That's where most of their money came from, if I remember right. We got funded to the Pan Am Games. We got funded to the World Championships. And we got funded to the Olympic Festival, which is something they don't have anymore. So it's like a tournament where they brought in the top eight or so in every sport and did this kind of spectacle. Right. And other than that, you were on your own. And by then, I got my MBA. I was working as an industrial engineer, so I had a pretty good salary. Um, I was divorced, had a baby. who was a year old, almost two. So, yeah, I just paid my way to things. And then there were some times when I just could not justify it. It's like, I got a kid. I've got a career and the late Frank Fullerton and Bruce Toops, I used to call them the airplane fairies. They would call up my coach, Jimmy Martin, and say, what does she need? And he'd say, she needs to train in Europe. And airplane tickets would show up in my mail. But no, that was not from USA Judo. That was from the Frank Fullerton and Bruce Toops want to see an Olympic and want to see the world gold medal fund. Right. So Going back to uh, the world championships, the very first world championship, all of our listeners know, uh, Anne-Marie is the very first American to win a world judo championship. And this is 1984. So again, you know, back to some of the inequalities. And I'm sure that this was, you know, slightly frustrating that a lot of the men are preparing for the Olympics. And that was not an option for you at that time. But it didn't it didn't hold you back. You know, it's funny. I've talked to people about that and I think they find it hard to believe. I 
cared not at all. Um, because when I was competing, 1980, the U.S. didn't go to the Olympics and some of the U.S. allies, I think Japan didn't go. So if you think you go to the Olympics and you win a, a, goal, a medal and Japan wasn't there, do you really feel like you, you were best in the world? I mean, you don't know, right? right? And in 84, the Eastern Bloc countries boycotted the Olympics. Right. And again, you know, Russia doesn't show up. Um, East Germany doesn't show up. You just, do you really know, right, that you were best? So for me, I never cared about the pomp and circumstance and service. I wanted to be best on the planet. And back then, the world championships was everybody because there was no political payoff right. in boycotting it. So I got to be the best of everybody, no little asterisk next to it. And then 88, women's judo was in the Olympics, but it was a demonstration sport. So they only had, I think, the top eight or something. But by right. then, I had two more kids and was working on a PhD. So, um, you know, I got what I wanted and I have zero complaints. I got to be best in the world and get a PhD and start some companies and have a bunch of kids and marry the man of my dreams. That's amazing. So looking back at some of the uh, people who paved the way, you know, the late Rusty Kanakogi, I know did a lot for women's sport in not only the United States, but, you know, around the world. And, you know, were, were you ever close or did you get to know Rusty? I did. And one thing that I'm happy about, because I was a dumbass when I was young and very unappreciative things, is that I wised up late, better late than never, in time to tell Rusty publicly in front of a lot of people that I did not appreciate what she did for me when I was young, but now that I'm older, I do, and I didn't thank her enough, and I do now, and I, I was glad I was able to say that to her when she was still around to say it to. That's, so that's yeah, gotta she feel did good. a lot in a number of ways. Um, Rusty's kind of an interesting person. Her and I were sitting next to each other uh, on a fl flight out to Austria, and she said to me, you know, you're different from a lot of these other women. She goes, you're more like me. She goes, because a lot of these women, she mentioned a couple of very nice people on the team and they're very beautiful technicians. And she said, nobody's ever punched them in the face. She said, I'll bet you've been punched in the face. She goes, yeah, you know, if I punched them in the face right now, they would just cry. She goes, if I punched you in the face and I looked at us, you'd been out for cry. And she <laughs> laughed. She just thought that was hilarious. Um, so when she was like really, really advocating for women to be in the Olympics, a lot of people said about, well, she just wants to be, you know, women to be in the Olympics so she could be an Olympic coach. And I, my thought was, so what? It is perfectly all right for a woman to have ambition. And I think that was a good thing that she kind of modeled for me. And I try to remember that. Like I just finished doing this research project for the National Science Foundation. I was talking to this woman who's superintendent of the school district. She's quite, quite good. And she said something about, yeah, and I'm not satisfied being here. I'll be superintendent of a much bigger district. And my initial thought was, oh, don't you think you're great? And then I thought, you know, good for you. So I think that was a great thing about Rusty, not just as a, a coach and judo player, but for me as a you know relatively young professional woman coming up to see it's okay to be ambitious if you're a woman. For sure. Rusty definitely paved the way for so many young women in judo. And, and clearly you never lacked the ambition or motivation to tackle all the obstacles in front of you in life. I wanted to talk a little bit more about your educational drive. There's lots of sacrifices that people have to make to get to a high level in any sport, but education shouldn't be something that people have to sacrifice. In the last 20, 30, even 40 years, we have tons of examples just right here in the United States of people that pursued judo at a high level and simultaneously pursued their education. 
So I think your story proves this as, you know, your education didn't seem to have any negative impact on your judo career. And it obviously had a huge positive impact on your life after judo. Jim Woolley's a doctor. He was on two Olympic teams. You know, you don't have to. Um, Pat Burris was very successful in business. He was on two Olympic teams. I really hate that idea. I don't care how tough you are. Nobody trains 12 hours a day. I mean, physically, your body's going to break down. So like for me, I would go work out in the morning. And this is when I was working as an engineer full time. I'd go work out in the morning. I'd go to work. I'd work out again on my lunch hour. I'd go back to work. And then I'd do judo in the evenings. And then on the weekends, I did judo. I didn't go to a lot of parties. I didn't see a lot of movies. I didn't watch TV. So there's definitely some social sacrifices that athletes are going to have to make to reach the highest level in sport. But I hope that every athlete out there realizes that they don't have to skip over school to pursue judo. So if you were to offer advice to a young athlete or maybe even like a young coach or somebody that's working with young athletes, could you come up with some defining characteristic of a future judo champion that doesn't want to neglect their studies? You know, what kind of positive attributes or characteristics are we looking at in a young athlete? Well, I think for being a champion in judo, I, th- I don't remember, it might have been Pat Burst or somebody said one time, we were up at, I, I think at San Jose, there was some tournament. And then after the tournament, there was a clinic. And I was there, a bunch of other people were there. Um, Mike Swain was there, Pat Burst was there, Rhonda was there, my daughter. And she was maybe 13, 14. And after the clinic was over, Rhonda goes to somebody, probably Pat, and said, the thing you did, you know, that you showed in the clinic, can you show me that? And then there was something I did, and um, Pat was saying, yeah, what is that? You know, how did you do that kind of weird sayoe? And then you threw in a, uh, like a Satoshi thing. So at the end of it, um, Ron Tripp came in for something like close up the room and that me and Pat and Mike and Rhonda were all still there. And you know, Pat was probably, I don't know, 10 years older than the rest of us. And of course, Ron was 20 years younger than me or Mike. The thing we all had in common is we were there after everybody else left. And my track coach in college had happened to be in the Olympics. The only reason that Washington University in St. Louis could afford somebody at that level is they let her go to college for free there for her PhD. So here's a woman who was in the Olympics and getting a PhD. And she had a sign up in her office that said, champions always do more. And I think that is the defining thing, that if you want to look, and I've, I've seen this in judo many a time, if you want to look and see who's going to win in the end, who's going to be successful, you go to those junior training camps, for example, and I'm a little person, so I like go sit up on the mat somewhere in a corner, you know, the mat stacked up out of the way. And I'll watch which of those kids goes every round. You know, which kid got there, was on the mat first and left last. And um, there is a kid years ago, pretty good judo player. And Steve, Steve Sack said to me, kid's not that good. And I said, he's won all these two things. He said, there's a difference between early physical development and talent. And he said, that kid is physically a man. You know, he's, I don't know, 13, 14. Um, but he was, we were at a judo camp and Justin Flores, remember Justin's really good judo player. They're about the same, um, about the same weight. And Ryan never liked this kid. She said, he's not that good. And 
so he goes with Justin one round and then they, and he was a good kid, right? So they call time and then Justin said, and this kid gets up and like sprints away from him. Justin goes, Grips, let's go, let's go again. And, um, and the kids, oh, he said, you know, they said that Sensei said to change. And afterwards we were out and I said to Justin, Brian's right, that kid's not going to be any good. And he said, oh, what do you mean? He's one this, he's one that. I said, Brian, Justin. When we go down to visit you at Sanchi, how many rounds does my daughter ride to go with you? And they were both like probably 14 years old, right? And Justin was 23 or something. And Justin said, Emery, your daughter's like a little tick, man. I can't get her off of me. Right. You know, I'm trying to go with the guys. And she's like, come on, let's go again. Let's go again. So here's somebody who's going for the toughest guy in the room. So this person does more. And the interesting there is you're talking about judo, but I think it was Watson, one of the guys who discovered the double the structure of DNA, Watson and Crick. Anyway, somebody, he did a, there's an article that he did on advice to a young scientist. And they said, what advice would you give to a young scientist? And he said, never be the smartest person in the room. And if you are, find another room. And so his advice was always be finding people who are better than you, that you can learn from. So I think whether it's judo or whether it's academics or whether it's business, you have the people who are seeking out people who are better than them. And then you've got the people that they always want to be comfortable. They want to be the best person. And you might think the one who always wants to be the best person is the one that's going to make it. But no, it's the one who's always looking for, for more, for more of a challenge. Um, maybe that's more than you wanted to hear about that. No, I, that was, that's awesome. I mean, I think that that's exactly the way that, you know, I've had coaches tell me, you know, in the past, you know, by getting out of your comfort zone and, and, and you're right because it is easy to sit back and say, I want to try hard. I want to do all the right things, but it's difficult to put yourself out of your comfort zone because you get, especially in a physical sport like judo, because outside of your comfort zone typically means you're getting roughed up a little bit. That's the reality for what we do. But that's when you get better. Absolutely. Well, and there's, there's a, a psychologist, Vygotsky, that talked about your zone of proximal development. And that's where you're being challenged, like what you can do from. So at the bottom of it is what you can do with no help, what you can do all alone. And at the top of it is what you cannot achieve no matter what, no matter how much help you get. And then in between is where you grow. So you, how old are your kids? Uh, I've got a 7, 10, and 12. Okay, so you're a 12-year-old. Probably no matter how much you help him, he's not going to understand differential calculus at that age, unless he's super bright. But if you helped him, maybe you could teach him algebra. You know, maybe he wouldn't get it all by himself. But if you said here, you know, you've got this exponent here and you, you know, you multiply this out, you would be able to help him do it. So, and probably he doesn't need you to help him multiply, Right. So what you do is you take people where it's enough of a challenge that it's hard, but they can do it. We send kids to Japan or Europe to get their ass kicked when they're in no way ready to be there. And that's not helping them. You know, people say, oh, well, kids need to go to Europe for the experience. And I told Ron, you don't need the experience of losing. When I think you're ready to go and beat some people up, you can go. That's great advice. And I've been, I've been in that camp, you know, the camp that says, hey, go get some experience. And and it's usually bad experience. Typically, <laughs> that's what happens. That's, that's what I say. I think I benefited by my folks not having the money to send me anywhere, because before you know, the first time I went to Europe, 
Bruce Toops or somebody said, look, you know, I think this woman has a chance to get a medal. Let's buy her a ticket. And so nobody sent me anywhere for experience. So on the subject of developing athletes, I know a lot of parents probably wouldn't say it out loud, but parents, you know, including myself, like we have like goals or, or maybe like an agenda in the back of our mind when it comes to sport. You know, even for me, like deep down, I want my kids to like judo. But I know it's not healthy to push them if that's not the direction that they're excited about. You know, for example, like my oldest son, he's 12, he's been doing judo, but he doesn't, he doesn't really care for it. But I struggle with whether I should make him continue with judo. And you know, I'm not expecting him to be like a competitor even. I really just want him to train and go through judo because I know that all the other benefits of judo outside of competition will serve him later in life. So how did you handle sports with all of your kids? I know we know Rhonda took a liking to judo and had a tremendous amount of success. And I know your oldest daughter pursued a career as a writer, but you know, did she practice judo as a young kid? She did for a very short period of time, which is very young, like probably less than six, less than six years old. And it's funny because her dad was the British national champion, collegiate champion, right? Her dad did judo, um, but she wasn't that interested in it. She started running track when she was nine, ran track all the way through high school and college. And then the second one told me when she was probably nine or 10 years old, I hate all sports and you will never make me like them. And <laughs> To this day, her and, her and Rhonda are 13 months apart. Jen has a master's degree in history. She has tenure at LA Unified. She has every bit as much as physical athletic talent as Rhonda does. She just has zero interest. So how do you find that balance as a parent? You know, Any examples that you can remember, like when the kids were younger, um, you, know, you kind of thought maybe that they wanted to go on a certain path and you know, maybe it was judo for Rhonda or maybe it was education for one of your other daughters. How did you handle you know, what you made them do versus what they wanted to do and how did you differentiate and you know, where did you draw the line? Well, Maria was the oldest. She ran track, she ran cross country. She ran the mile. She, but her most, mostly she did pole vaulting. And she told me when she was about 15, about a sophomore in high school, I think, I know what it takes to make the Olympic team and I don't want it that bad. And I said, that's okay. But I understand I'll meet you where you are. You go. So if you don't want it that bad, I'm funding you to camps around the country and all this kind of stuff to party. You know, you don't have to go. That's fine. And in fact, when Rhonda was at the Olympics in Athens, Maria was there covering it for Sports Illustrated. She graduated from college. She was working for Sports Illustrated. So what she wanted was to be a writer. Um, Jennifer, like I said, hated all sports. I am a sound believer in that old Greek ideal of a sound mind and a sound body. I made her do every sport. I put her in judo, which she could have been really good at. I put her in basketball and volleyball and swimming, and she just hated all of it. Um, and to this day, she just doesn't like sports. Um, and then Rhonda was in swimming. She was super good at Rhonda was good at every sport. She was in, she was in swimming. She entered the Hershey's track meet and won the long jump and a bunch of other stuff. When we moved here to L.A., she made the Junior Olympics for the region in swimming, which is huge in Los Angeles. And then she um, decided she wanted to do judo. And I told her not to do it because I said, look, swimming's got scholarships. You're doing great at it. You know, your mom was world champion. Everyone's going to expect you to like win the Junior Nationals your first year. And Hayward Nishioka says to me, no one remembers you, Anne-Marie. Let the kid do judo. <laughs> um, 
And yeah, she liked it. And she was, she was in judo a couple of years. So she was maybe 12, 13. And I called USA Judo and I said, I got a kid that I think is going to be really good at judo. Um, can you send me whatever program you have for really high potential junior athletes? And they laughed at me and said, yeah, that'd be a good thing to have, wouldn't it? Right. So I just kind of put together the best I could. You know, what worked for me everywhere I go, I would talk to people that I knew that had been world Olympic level athletes and say, you know, I got this kid. She's really good. She's like 14, 15. If you could go back to yourself at that age, what would you do? You know, people I knew who got in the Olympics and come in fifth or whatever, you know, what would you have done? different. And so I didn't do everything they said, but I took a lot of their advice. Um, I tried to look at what I had done that I felt was good for me. Uh, One thing that I did is I trained a lot of different places. You know, I'll I'll tell you, um, maybe I won't say the person's name because I actually like him, but we were at the junior nationals one year and Rhonda's going up to fight this kid. And I said, She's going to come in. She's going to bow in. She's going to get high grip. She's going to come into Ojigari. You're left-handed. She's probably right-handed because most people are right-handed. When she comes in for that Ojigari, you turn, you hit her with left Ujimata and drill her into the mat. So she does. And she comes off the mat. She goes, Mom, that's amazing. You've seen that kid fight a bazillion times. And I said, I never saw that kid before in my life. <laughs> but I know whose club she's from. And everybody from his club fights that way. And so that's one of the things that I would look at it that some people, I figured, what do I got going for me? And I thought of this when I was a teenager, okay? Um, I didn't go to any famous club. I didn't have an Ernie Smith to coach me. I didn't have anybody like super well-known. Um, I didn't have any money. I did go to Japan for a year because I took a year abroad scholarship through the university and went there. Um, I trashed my knee in, so it was totally bashed. I couldn't do half the standing techniques ever. And I thought, well, what do I got going for me? And I thought, well, I'm smart. I mean, hell, I'm 19 years old, graduating from the top universities in the country. I'm smart. So how could I use that? And so I would really make an effort to analyze people. And I think before that was a thing, I mean, you know, Super 8 tapes were just getting to be a thing. Videotape didn't exist. And I would go watch my competitors. And a lot of people didn't take that approach. And I had somebody ask me once, um, and she was a pretty decent junior player. And she said, how can you, I only win the senior nationals. You know, what can you tell me? Or how can you, can you help me? And I said, okay, well, who are the top five people in your division? What do they do? And she said, well, I don't know. I just do my judo. That doesn't have anything to do with me. And I said, well, I probably don't know anything to help you. That's interesting. I actually asked, I, I talked with Mike as you listened and I asked him about videos and I know it's just a different, different era and it was a little bit more work or, or maybe a lot more work to try to get a hold of the videos and to try to get mm-hmm. a hold and, and study your, your opponents. And nowadays that's, uh, it's super easy and everyone's doing it. So at what point did you start to do this kind of training with Rhonda, like a research-based, you know, training system where you're analyzing matches and, you know, doing research on her competitors, that sort of thing? When she first started, when she was just young, I just wanted her to have a good time. You know, I and it's funny, my daughter Julia played four years of college soccer, and she started soccer relatively late, you know, like she was 11. 
And so many of those kids that she played soccer with on the city all-star team didn't even play in high school. And none of them played in college except for her. And they just burn out. So when Rhonda was young, I just wanted to have a good time, be healthy. And then when she got a little bit older and she said she wanted to win, I said, well, I know what it takes to win. So we, you know, I took her to clubs where she could get really good standing technique because that is not my strong point. Um, I didn't really teach her very much the first year or two because I didn't want her to turn into a little mini version of me. You know, I see a lot of parents that coach their own kids to do that. Um, and plus she was 11 and my big thing was arm bars, right? So after she'd been judo a couple of years, she was going to go into the high school nationals the next year. And I said, next year, at the beginning of the year, are the high school nationals. It's the first point tournament for the junior worlds. People are going to see you as a little freshman and think they can armbar you. Because especially down in Nanka, they allow armbars to use 17 to black belt, some crazy thing. And I said, I'm going to armbar you practice every time you breathe. Every time you turn around, you're going to be an armbar. And oh my gosh, she told me that, you know, for about six months, how she hated me. She hated judo. She would still go, but I was the evilest person in the world. And then she went to the high school nationals and there were a lot of bullfights that were longer than her matches. I mean, she went through people in seconds. So we got paid off in the end. I have a short story about Rhonda that was is similar to what you're saying. So when I was coaching at San Jose State, uh, I don't remember the exact year, but it was one of those years where she was coming up for one of those camps and she must have been 14 or 15 years old. And, and I'm, you know, I'll be at a grown man at, you know, 25 years old or something. And we did Nate was, and we were doing something. I arm barred her and her, the mentality that she had was so different that I didn't even know how to respond because I arm barred her and she kind of like shoved me off of her. Like, as if it was a huge surprise that I was able to do that to her. And in my mind, I'm going like, I'm like one of the top guys in the country. I'm a grown man. I'm 25 years old. And even at 14, her mentality is this guy shouldn't be able to arm bar me. So how does a 14 year old, you know, kid come up with that kind of confidence where she's facing, you know, a grown man and has full expectation that she should be able to win. I mean, going through life with that kind of confidence is an asset that we would all love to have. I believe that your children rise to the level of what you demand, not of what you expect. And I think it has to be reasonable. But again, you know, if Rhonda had said, like when Rhonda wanted to go to the Junior World the first time, she's 15, she made it for the Junior World team. And she said to me, do you think I could win it? And I said, well, anything is possible. And she said, but do you think I, you know, I have an 85% chance. I don't know what she got and I said, no, you're 15. You started judo four years ago. You're going to fight, you know, women who are almost 20 that have been Jew and judo three times. No, I don't think you have at least an 85% chance. And she said, then I don't want to go. And I told, so then I got, you know, pushed back from USA Judo and she's our number one player. And I said, the fact that the best player under 20 in the U.S. is 15 is not my problem. It's not my daughter's problem. It's your problem. So I think one of the things that gave my kids confidence is they knew I always had their back and I would never ask them to do anything I didn't think they could do. And I hear a lot of parents say that, that, oh, you know, the most important thing is my kid, but you will see that kid stay in judo for years because the parents are embarrassed to let them quit. 
you will see them stay at a club where they are very unhappy because, oh, the coach sucks up to me. I don't know why they do it. Um, you know, I told people at clubs where my kids were, if my kids hate judo, I'm not going to make them come. You know, they go to school all day. It's not going to bring them, well, I guess in Rhonda's case, I was wrong about this, but I'm thinking it's not going to bring them a living. Right. You know, Julia was, started judo when she was four. She won the junior nationals, the state championships when she was 10. She's pretty, she could have been another little Rhonda. And she yeah. looks like, I mean, you've seen her. She looks like a three quarter size version of Rhonda, right? Yep. I remember. And she, she says to me, I want to do soccer. And you know, everybody has those times and I don't like judo or I don't like this. And I said, yeah, maybe you should stick it out for a while. And after a year, she still said, I don't want to do judo. I want to do soccer. So she started playing soccer and she's played it ever since all the way through college. Anne-Marie has always had great relationships with her children, giving them the flexibility and support that they need to find their own path. One was a sports writer who was able to cover the Olympics while her sister was competing. Another, a passionate educator, and one, a recent college grad. Rusty Kanakogi, who played a vital role for women in judo, paved the way to have women's judo included in the Olympic Games in 1988. She was one of the motivating factors in some of Anne-Marie's early success as a judoka and a professional. Rusty's influence was still alive almost 25 years later when Anne-Marie's daughter Rhonda became the first female athlete to sign with the UFC later becoming a bantamweight champion of the world. In this next segment, we will see how Dr. Anne-Marie DeMars continues to strive for excellence as she gives back to her local community. Her and her family have developed a very successful inner-city judo program in Los Angeles that has been going strong for more than 10 years. Putting her lifelong pursuit of education to use, she became an entrepreneurial inspiration in her 50s. Using her resources and life experiences, she founded a software startup that creates immersive video games and interactive apps that teach math, history, and language. These programs continue to make a huge impact on thousands of youth around the country. So it seems like you've kind of done it all. I mean, you've made it to the top of the judo world. Uh, You've had a great professional career. You've raised a family and you still seem to find time for more. Um, you spent quite a bit of time, it seems, working with some of the judo organizations like NANCA, CJI, USJA. And, you know, we all know the challenges that present themselves when working with these kind of organizations. Um, can you talk about some of the things that your teams were able to accomplish or maybe some of the programs that you were able to implement that were a success while you were volunteering for these judo organizations? I think. The things that were really good is that we raised a lot of money to give opportunities for people. So there were a lot of camps. Um, we sent people over to, I think, the Irish Open, the Scottish Open. Um, we had a lot of camps around the country. We would fund athletes. And we did this both with CJI and NAGA and USJA, where you have all these athletes who are senior competitors who say, give me money. But most of the money coming into those organizations is from young kids at clubs like yours. And so what do you do? So you could say, well, hey, how about you come to this club, give a clinic for these 40 kids, and I'll give you, you know, 500 bucks. So those 40 kids feel like they got something from their membership. You got 500 bucks for two hours work. And so I think that was something that I've always believed in is that, you know, you give to get that nobody's running out handing me money, but everybody should benefit. And I think maybe we've kind of lost that idea some. 
I think that might have been the beginning of what they are now calling the Nanka Shodai program, where you're getting people together. I mean, because when I was a kid growing up in Nanka, we, you know, we had a, a pretty organized tournament circuit, but as far as training camps and, you know, so now as somebody who runs a club and I've got kids of my own, I'm constantly kind of trying to figure out the best way of investing not only your money, but your time. And obviously with kids, especially because the bulk of the kids are under 10 years old, like, do they really need to be spending all their time competing in tournaments? I think spending the money like you guys did to bring in clinicians and, and having them get together to practice is probably a lot more beneficial. Was there a lot of conversation at that time of the benefit of more practice versus just blowing your money on tournaments every weekend? Oh, I want to be really clear. The show I pro was not my idea. It was two guys from Valley Judo, Fernando Gazzani and um, Jason Uno. And I was at the time director of development for NACA and they came to me and said, we got this idea of having these practices and show programs. And, and I said, that's a great idea. What do you need? And they said, we need money. And I said, I can raise money. So they came up with the idea and I went and got money for it. And I, I said, I think that an amazing amount of stuff could happen if people weren't too worried about who got the credit. You know, I wasn't sure. too worried if I got the credit and Fernando and Jason weren't too worried if they got the credit. And a lot of people came in and spent two hours on the mat doing a clinic and went out like they were God's gift to the universe. But, you know, we didn't care because we did a lot of those clinics and a lot of kids benefited For and sure. we even made money on it. And the first person we brought in was Jimmy Pedro Jr. And I said, this guy's got some good judo. We should bring him in here and have a camp. And um, everybody was saying, well, how would you get this money? Because he wanted money. He wanted money to fly in, um, which I don't think is unreasonable, right? right. Um, he wanted us to pay his expenses. He wanted us to pay him some money because he was going to be away from work. And so I figured out how much he wanted. I figured out how much it was, you know, how we'd have to charge per kid and how many kids we'd need. And I said, I can make that happen. And then, of course, I was on the hook because if we hadn't, that check would have come out of Anne Renee's bank account. But, right. it worked, you know, once we did it once, it was easier to do it again and again. So in addition to helping with the obvious, you know, with the, with Nanka and the other organizations, I think the thing that you, and I guess possibly Rhonda, I, I could be wrong on this, but the, uh, Gompers judo program, which I, from my knowledge was like a, a big area of success. You know, could you tell us a little bit about the Gompers program that you put together? Let me brag for a minute. Um, three of my kids, three of the kids from the Gompers program graduated high school this year. Um, Ryan, Rashad, and Skyler, they got accepted at 14 universities between the three of them. This is amazing. So um, Rashad's going to go to UCLA. I believe Skyler is going to go to Shaw University in North Carolina on a band scholarship. Skyler is six foot five, African-American. So of course he got a scholarship for trombone. (laughs) (laughs) I know he's a great kid. Um, His brother also is in the program, graduated high school. One thing we're super proud of is uh, 100% of kids in the Gompers program have graduated from high school. Um, Leslie, who graduated last year, went on to Stanford. William last year went to UC Irvine. Jose is a junior at Cal State LA. So they're a really, they've done really well. Um, there's a couple people, they know who they are, who I thought for sure were going to be the one to break that record. But they did graduate. Some of them might have had to take summer school, but they did graduate. And this is in an area where some years less than half the kids graduate from high school. So we're super proud of that. So can you back up just a, just a little bit to, for those of you, you know, we have a lot of people in the audience that may not know anything about the Gompers program. Like how did you, you know, what is it about? How did it start? How long has it been going on? It started in 2009. My daughter, Jennifer, so Gompers Middle School is in South Los Angeles. 
South LA is just imagine anything you want to be low being high, anything you want to be high being low, whether it's teenage pregnancy or dropout rates or poverty or whatever. And that's South LA. Um, so Jen was doing her student teaching there and she was teaching about, Jen's an amazing teacher. So she's teaching about medieval Japan and the Budo, the Meiji restoration, all that stuff that they teach in that year. And so as what she thinks would be a great visual aid, she has her younger sister, Rhonda, come in and talk about judo and Rhonda picks her up over her head and all stuff. And of course, all the middle school kids think that's great that Miss Rousey, their teacher, is now being held up in the air. And so Jen asked Rhonda if she knows anybody who would teach judo in the after school program, but they have no money. So Rhonda agrees to do it for free. Now, at the time, Rhonda's working two, two or three jobs, um, has just won Olympic medal, has no money, but she's teaching there for free. And she did that for a couple of years. And then she started doing this MMA thing. And I was working at USC, you know, maybe five miles up the road. And Rhonda would keep calling, Mom, I got to do this photo shoot. I got to do this thing. Can you like take off from work and run down here and teach judo? <laughs> so after a couple of years, she just, could not fit it in her schedule between being UFC champion and stuff anymore. And then I took it over. So the program's been there 11 years. Well, wow. And are you still involved with that on a regular basis teaching? Well, I am, except for now, because everything's now. closed. Right. <laughs> Until coronavirus happened, yes. Um, we had practice, we practiced three times a week. And I would teach once a week. A friend of mine, um, Blinky Richard Elizalde, would teach once a week. And then Jose Gonzalez, who's a teacher from the school, runs conditioning practice. So it started out once a week and the kids wanted to have it twice a week. And I said, I just don't have time. I just cannot take more time away from work. Yeah. And so then Blinky would come into it once a week and they went up three times a week. And so, yeah, it's a really good group of kids. And yeah. we, because my family funds the whole thing. So we, my family and friends, I call up people I know and say, give me money. Um, you know, for my, we, when we first started it, the mats were so bad. And so we got a few mats for my mom's 83rd birthday. My sister says, for the love of God, mom's 83. She wanted a sweater. She bought herself a sweater, right? I mean, let's everybody donate money for this thing Anne is doing in South LA. Everybody buy a mat for them. And so I think <laughs> we bought them from you, from Suede Sports. Bought right. some mats and yeah. some crash pads. And then um, a crazy thing, I don't know if you know about this, but I had no idea. So one day... So that we're there for years. The school gives us our own room at the middle school. So we've got our own dojo with these old, small, however many mats we get. And one day a semi pulls up and these guys from Orange County Dojo get out and Mike Swade had donated all these mats. And I'm not often speechless. And me and Jose Gonzalez were standing there with our mouth open. They filled, they filled the room with like, Olympic level Tommy. And yeah, the kids came for practice that day. They're like, Miss, Miss, are we in the right place? So it's a really nice facility from when we started on these old, old gymnastics mats in a gym where there were tiles from the ceiling falling on the mats. And sometimes we'd have to, you know, pick up the parts of the ceiling that had fallen in before right. practice. So yeah, what an amazing program. The Gompers programs is you know, over 10 years strong and uh, you've obviously provided like some amazing opportunities, educational opportunities, physical education opportunities for these kids that, you know, would probably otherwise never have any introduction to judo. And now they're off to, you know, it sounded like you have quite the list of kids that have gone on to, you know, pursue their college educations. And that's just, that's amazing. Well, I think if you 
you do good things from a good place that people recognize that. And I, um, you know, one year I wanted to take a bunch of them to Washington, D.C., and Morris Allen offered to do a, a camp for them free. And Morris doesn't do a lot of things for free. <laughs> and um, so I had the money for airfare. Rhonda, like, donated a bunch of, I don't know, things that she had worn in the UFC or something. We auctioned off and raised enough money to buy all the kids' plane tickets. And, um, and I still had to come up with money for a hotel. And somebody wrote me a check for five grand. Um, I needed, when we did JudoCon, which is an amazing thing out here, um, my kids needed JudoGis. I mean, some of them had got JudoGis donated before, but they grew, right? I mean, and yeah, somebody hit me up and said, how much do you need? And she wrote a check for everyone I'm going to JudoGi and the people we bought them from threw in gi bags for every kid. So I think when you do good things, people want to be part of that. Well, I don't know where you find the time for all this, uh, Anne-Marie. Like, it seems like you've kind of done it all already. And here you are in, uh, you know, what well, you're in like midlife at this point. That's very kind of you to say. I'm 61. <laughs> so unless I'd love to be 122, I'm not in midlife. I'm old. But that oh, come on. I wasn't going to say it. So, so 61, she said it. And <laughs> so why not get into a startup, you know? At your age, you know, why not get into a software company? Um, tell us about Seven Generation Games. Well, I always say, no, I look more like Mark Zuckerberg's maid than Mark Zuckerberg. In fact, I was yelling at Jennifer one time when she was younger, and I said, you know, what do I look like? You're maid? She goes, well, you're short, you're Hispanic, you look a lot like our maid. <laughs> but anyway, I, yeah, look back on what made the difference for me when I was young, because I, you know, people laugh when I say this, but it is the God's truth. If I wasn't good at judo and if I wasn't good at math, I would be in Chino women's prison right now. I mean, I was in juvenile hall when I was a kid. I got expelled from school for fighting, for threatening to beat up the principal, which I would have to. Um, so I was good at math. I took the SATs, got a near perfect score, got a scholarship to college, and it changed my whole life. And even though I, and all the stories you heard about me when I was young were probably true, I was not exactly the warm, fuzzy type, but I was good with computers, good with math, back when, you know, if you could breathe and you could program a computer, they didn't care what you were like. And so it changed my life. It changed my kids' lives because I was able to make a good living. I was able to send them to NYU and USC and the Olympics and it changed their kids' lives because my grandkids' lives, because now, you know, Maria met her husband who went to Stanford and Jen met her husband who's an art director. And now my grandkids have better lives and all because I was good at math. And I see so many kids who, when they're young, they are going to be an architect, they're going to be an aeronautical engineer, they're going to be an astronaut or a physician or whatever. And that same kid their last year of high school, first year of college, they're going to drop out, they're going to be a truck driver, they're going to major in communications or whatever. And I ask them why? Well, they couldn't get through those math classes. And math is unique in that it's hierarchical, right? So if you don't get fractions, you're not going to understand decimals. If you don't get, you know, multiplication, you're never going to be able to understand exponents. If you don't get exponents, you're not going to understand square roots or logarithms or so then you have people who say, well, I don't have that math brain or I'm stupid. It's like, no, if you 
are building a building and you leave out some bricks in the bottom and it falls over, it's not because they weren't building bricks. It was because you didn't have that foundation. And my kids had that opportunity because I made them. You know, I remember Julia was um, trying to do some, she was in probably seventh or eighth grade and she had was going to do the science experiment. It involved a double blind crossover study and she had the data and she couldn't figure it out. And she was throwing a little fit. And I said, you're going to sit down at that table till you figure it out. And, oh, I was the meanest person in the world. And my husband told me I was a mean old lady and she cried. And, you know, I'm going to be here my whole life. I said, no, you'll be here till you go to bed. And if you haven't figured out by then, you can sit here when you get home from school tomorrow and be here till you go to bed. And then within a couple hours, she figured it out and stomped off to bed. Um, but she had people at home to help her. You know, she had a dad who could explain to her what Snell's Law is and what it has to do with refraction. A lot of kids don't have that. And this idea that everybody has equal opportunity is a nice fairy tale. So what are we going to do about it? Because realistically, I'm giving my kid every advantage I can. And I'll bet you are too. I mean, I'm sorry the kids at Gompers don't have it, but I still sent Julia to a prep school that costs, you know, basically an arm and a leg and a kidney. So what could I do to help a bunch of those kids? Well, kids like to play games. I know how to program stuff. And so when I was, um, how Seven Generation Games started, I have a really good friend who was president of, at the time of the school board on his reservation on the Spirit Lake Nation. And we were in Washington, D.C. We got invited out there to analyze the National Indian Education Study. And we found that the more kids learned their language and culture, their native language and culture, the worse they did in that. And I was surprised by that because I thought, oh, it's always good to learn your language and culture. And why would, you know, kids would like school more. And, and Eric says to me, there's only six hours in a school day. If I take an hour out of it, to teach Dakota language and culture, that's an hour less in the day for them to learn math and English. So we're sharing a taxi back to the airport and Eric looks over at me and he says, I'm not going to accept this. I'm not going to accept that my grandkids will learn their culture or learn math. You should do something. And I said, me, how is it my responsibility? And at the time I was making bank, working for a big company doing statistics. And he said, I know you, you don't want to spend your life driving up and down the 405 and working inside of a box. You know, let's start this company. So, so we did. And um, we did some studies and the kids who played our games improved their math scores 30% over a 12 week period out of which there's only 10 weeks of school because they always have those days off and this and that. But anyway, um, and the kids who were in school, not playing our games improved from 10%. So Obviously, that's three times as much, even if you're not super good at math, you know that. And so it kind of went from there. And we've been pushing, sometimes it's like pushing water uphill. So it's kind of those judo experiences were good for me in that you do stuff and people don't necessarily appreciate it or you have to keep working for a really, really long time. Like, how long did you practice those chokes before you caught Jimmy Pedro in the U.S. Open? Right. Um, a lot of times, right? It wasn't right. like, oh, I just did a practice this weekend and bang. Right. Um, so I think that experience has been good for me because 
yeah, I don't look like you're a typical person that, you know, I'm not the Silicon Valley dude, bro, that dropped out of Stanford and I'm 20. And, um, but I've been doing stuff people tell me I couldn't do my whole life. So I'm practiced at it by now. You're an absolute inspiration to to so many people out there. I mean, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me tonight. I mean, your story starts on the mat as a little girl and, you know, you have this like desire and this passion for, for sport. You use that same ambition to, you know, build your family and provide for your family. And all along, you're giving back to the community. You're, you're kind of doing it all. And, and here you are at your young age and you're not giving up. You're continuing to strive to do great things for, for your community and your family. And it's a, it, you have an amazing story. And I think it's super cool that I hope that uh, this podcast, if I can get, you know, one kid in my dojo that listens to this and is inspired to pursue greatness, then this interview is all, all it's worth. You know, this, this is these kind of conversations in our small judo community of people that have excelled to the highest levels, you know, not, not just on the mat, but in life. And, and you're one of those examples and I'm excited to share your story. And I, I just want more people to know that there's people out there like you that have, you know, started on the mat and, and started, you know, chasing epones. And then you, you, you took that same passion for life and it's, it's proven to be successful for you and your family and, you know, I, I really appreciate you coming out here and spending your night with us. And Well, I'm doing a super fun thing right now that some of your kids, even your son, the oldest one might like. So we are doing online, your tax dollars at work, we're going to grant you this, um, a game design class. So we've got kids from all over the world, literally, that are, they do it an hour um, a day for five, for two weeks and develop games. And so it's, it's a really super cool, fun thing. So if you know any kids in judo who would like to do it, send them my way. I know hundreds that are home right now with maybe nothing better to do because we already did our physical exercise this evening. Um, why don't you give us the website where we can find you? Um, it's sevengenerationgames.com. And actually we don't, um, you know what, I will put it up there and I'll put it on that homepage for a while. Normally we don't advertise the game design class too much because we limit it to 10 kids per session, but we are funding only goes through the end of August. And then after that, so yeah, if we get more kids, I will open up a few sessions, but I'll put sevengenerationgames.com. Well, I'm going to send some people your way. Um, again, thank you so much for spending your night with us. Um, it's been a pleasure and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, you pursue new things because I don't think you're done. I think you've got more and I'm looking forward to the grandkids, maybe in judo geese, maybe not in judo geese, but I'm sure they're going to be successful. But Anne-Marie, thank you again for, for your time. I really appreciate it. All right. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to JudoCast. Please remember to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. For show notes and additional content, visit JudoCast.com. That's J-U-D-O-Cast.com.